again from Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. The topic that I have touched on in previous episodes is Northern Michigan's almost meteoric rise as one of the nation's premier summer resort destinations of the early 1900s. But there were a few challenging times for Michigan's resort communities over the years, including the 1940s and World War II, and of course the Great Depression. But one period in particular that always seems to fascinate people is the era of Prohibition and how it ironically coincided with the Roaring Twenties during a nationwide ban on alcohol. Prohibition was not a great thing for the resorts or the tourists that came to northern Michigan from all over, not just the country, but from all around the world. All in search of a good time, which had previously usually included a fair amount of spirits and libations. But Michigan was not destined to remain dry for long. And within just a few years, over 25,000 speakeasies had sprung up all around Metro Detroit alone, and hundreds more could be found in northern Michigan's resort towns. It is estimated that during the Volstead years, nearly 80% of the liquor that was smuggled into the United States was via Michigan, specifically the quote-unquote Windsor Corridor in Detroit. Imagine the sight of dozens of cars loaded with Canada's best hooch racing across Detroit River during the winter nights while trying to avoid law officers. The demand became so great for anything better than homemade bathtub gin that eventually a conveyor belt was built underneath the Detroit River that ran 24 hours a day, delivering an abundance of top-shelf liquor that was then dispersed all across the United States. It's estimated that during the Volstead years, nearly 80% of liquor that came into the United States was via Michigan, for the better part of a decade, bootlegging was the second largest industry behind automobile manufacturing in Detroit, earning hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and all of that money was undeclared. That flow of liquor and cash was almost completely controlled by the Purple Gang. While most people tend to associate organized gangs as being of either Irish or Italian descent, like the movie Goodfellas, for instance, the Purple Gang was an infamous group of Jewish gangsters led by the Bernstein brothers, including Sam Bernstein who was indeed related to the attorney of the same name that many of us know from the TV commercials. The Purple Gang absolutely dominated Detroit, as well as most of Michigan, but their strength and power reached far beyond just Michigan. They were often called upon to settle arguments amongst other rival gangs because of their reputation of being absolutely ruthless in their dealings. The gang was even feared by Al Capone himself. In 1929, a gentleman by the name of Al Gerhardt, a tall, handsome businessman from Detroit, along with financing provided by the Purple Gang, came to Harbor Springs and oversaw the construction of what was to be the Club Manitou. While there were already several speakeasies in the area, this was the most elaborate speakeasy north of Detroit, which Al ran illegally under the protection of the local sheriff for decades. Now, Al Gerhardt was not his given name. He was born in Pennsylvania of German-Jewish descent, and he quickly earned the trust of the Bernstein & Company as a driver and footman. And by the age of 24, Detroit Slim, or Big Al as he was called, had the finest gambling and drinking club in Michigan. And if you were fortunate enough to make it past the doorman, Paul Pepper, imagine a pissed off little Joe Pesci kind of guy, you would be escorted downstairs, past three steel doors, into an Art Deco dining room, complete with ventilation and false backlit windows that simulated daylight. Or maybe into an adjacent dining room combined with a more rustic up north feel. Either way, you were always surrounded by ringing slot machines. The building also harbored many secret rooms, false walls, and safes. 
and at that time, elaborate escape tunnels that led to various outbuildings, and one tunnel was even rumored to go as far as the Harbor Springs Airport. Patrons enjoyed top-shelf liquor served in crystal decanters and crystal glasses, along with a crystal bowl of freshly crushed ice. The house scotch was doers, and it only went up from there as far as quality. Guests had endless supplies of the best French wines and champagnes to choose from. The mobsters even displayed several moot liquor licenses above the bar, which I find amusing when I look at the old pictures of the Manitou. There was always great live music to be enjoyed while playing roulette or high-stakes poker with ivory poker chips after dinner. Union chefs from New York were brought in each season to serve the best cuisine, including lobster and seafood, which was shipped in daily via train. The all-male servers, also from New York, were always clad in crisp white tuxedos. There were cigarette girls around, also to supply men with cigars and the finest cigarettes of the day. Allen Company would periodically send out promotional photographs of the beautifully appointed club, documenting all of the wild goings-on, including images of himself counting out the day's proceeds of stacks and stacks of $100 bills. Foyard records show that the FBI was well aware of all the gambling going on within the club, and that they were also aware of the payments that were being made locally to keep everyone happy. We're talking big money professional gamblers from all around the country, as well as the ultra wealthy from Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, that gambled tens of thousands of dollars nightly. The standing rule, however, was no locals were allowed. That was a rule that was in order to help keep the sheriff happy and to avoid being raided for real. They had to keep those tourists coming. But you know, an occasional raid was not always a bad thing because the big news publications would pick up on the story and people from all around the Midwest then knew that the Manitou was in the business of gambling and providing its guests with top-shelf alcohol. Usually within a few weeks of a raid, another wave of affluent guests would arrive in Harbor Springs and join in for more nefarious fun. The club was, however, finally and fatally raided in 1954 and permanently shut down for the gambling and liquor violations that had been status quo for over 25 years including at least four years during Prohibition. Never one to give up, Big Al moved on to West Virginia, where he opened the Colonial Club in White Sulphur Springs. That club was also, not surprisingly, raided years later in 1963. And for what else? Liquor and gaming violations, of course. Soon after the closing of the Colonial Club in West Virginia, Al Gerhardt returned to northern Michigan, where he built a house that had a moat around it and a secret room with safe doors taken from the old club Manitou. Al's new home, it seems, was as much of a fortress as his old speakeasy. One of the reasons Al's house was such a fortress is he was quite concerned about his past um, relationship with the Purple Gang. It wasn't uncommon for Al to look out the window and see a big car go by and then hire private security to watch over him for the next few weeks. Once you're in a gang like that, it's kind of hard to ever find your way out. Years later, when Al finally retired, he moved into the same assisted living facility as one of the sheriffs that was once assigned the task of keeping him in line back in the old days. The two would often share stories with former Judge Ned Fenlon, another local character that claimed he paid his way through law school running liquor around the Great Lakes in his Chris Craft boat. Can you imagine sitting around and listening to the stories that these guys had? Ned would often brag that because of this fast boat, the Chris Craft, he would make his way through the Lachino Islands, with Canadian liquor bound for Mackinac Island, where he would radio ahead and have the Coast Guard actually come down and help him unload. Then Ned would continue around the bay, looking for red lights at the resorts. Once he found a resort that was waiting for their supply of alcohol to be delivered, 
Quite often, he would ask the resorters themselves to help unload the liquor. Not only was Ned a judge, he also became a congressman and was part of the group that got the Mackinac Bridge Project off the ground. Ned lived to the ripe old age of 106, and at 100 years old, he actually played banjo at City Park Grill. Uh, the City Park Grill also was an old speakeasy from back in the day. Quite fitting for Ned's final send-off. Now back to Al. Al himself never went to jail for racketeering or bootlegging during all of his years as a mobster, but he did spend time in Jackson Prison in 1936 for stealing trees from George Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway's uncle who owned a tree farm in Ironton, Michigan on Lake Charlevoix. Apparently there was a shootout, with Al firing his gun over the hood of the getaway car. He was chased into the woods where he was eventually caught and convicted. But even while he served his time in Jackson State Prison, Big Slim Gerhardt continued to run the Club Manitou. Now, I'm not sure how this whole stealing of trees caper came about for the gangster, but it surely must be better than fiction, even Ernest Hemingway's fiction. Al was thought to have died penniless, but he actually had a, quite a stash of, of cash. It's even said that the park in downtown Alanson was helped funded by Al Gerhardt and his earnings through the years. As for the fate of the Club Manitou, the drastically expanded club sat empty. There was one quick attempt to try to reopen it as a dinner club, but that didn't go over very well. In 1962, the property was purchased by a husband and wife, who were assured by Gerhardt himself that with his financial backing, they could obtain a new liquor license and reopen the club. In 1962, when that plan failed, the old club Manitou was then turned into what became one of the most popular teen venues for live music in the country, the Club Ponytail. Today, most of the infrastructure from the Club Manitou still remains. I've been fortunate enough to have gone through the buildings and the grounds. It seems that everybody on my tours always wants to know more about the Club Manitou and get a tour of the building, but it's a private residence at the moment, and it was quite an honor for me to be able to have a chance to tour the building, and that was, uh, I think, four years ago. A friend of mine here in town was a local, local history hound, as I am. Uh, we found out the history of the, the Club Manitou, which if you go online, you'll see all kinds of links to it and all kinds of stories even stories of underground tunnels that were big enough to accommodate limousines going back and forth to Harper Springs. Now, I'm not sure if all that was true, but when you're down in the basement, you can see all the infrastructure and a lot of the old remnants, including the band stage is still down there, the bars, the bar areas. Uh, and what fascinated me the day I was touring around was I actually found a big empty box of um, 45 caliber bullets. Makes you kind of wonder what other uh, activities were happening in the McClub Manitou. I've been speaking with the current owner for years now, and at some point I think the, uh, the building will be available for commercial use and tours. So if that ever happens, we'll make sure and make an announcement. As fascinated as I've always been with the history of the Club Manitou, as a musician, I think the story of the Club Ponytail and the famous rock groups that took the stage there over the years, including Sly and the Family Stone, The Animals, Conway Twitty, The Beach Boys, interests me even more. I hope you will join me, Christopher Struble, your host, next time to hear more about the Club Ponytail's illustrious history and the iconic musical legends that took its stages at Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. Mm -hmm.